Well, it is a joy to be back in the pulpit again after our little break due to the weather. And this morning I would like to share with you the things that I was going to share with you before we were snowed and iced out last week. And so perhaps the timing is just a little bit off, but I am quite confident the the subject will enlighten you. Because this morning I'm going to speak to you about the light of the world. And we're going to look at a number of passages, but if you want to to have uh, your Bible tuned to where we're going to spend most of the time, you can turn to John 8. But before we get there, might I say it's been a wonderful Christmas season for us. Uh, I love the Christmas season because we celebrate uh, the birth of Christ, and certainly as we have celebrated Christ's birth and as we have worshipped together, we have seen that the birth of Jesus is surrounded with light. We see that all through Scripture, and we want to examine that more deeply this morning. In Luke 2, you will recall that the angel announced his birth to the shepherds, and uh, he did so, and the text says that the glory of the Lord shone around them, the blazing light of his glory. In Matthew 2, the, the light of God's presence led the Persian kingmakers in the east to the very sight of their Savior and King, and we've studied that. And then, of course, we remember that later Jesus said in John 12:46, I have come as light into the world, that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then even later in the life of Christ, you will remember the wonderful transfiguration, that metamorphosis that occurred on the mount, where the ineffable brightness of his glory radiated from him, affirming his transcendent majesty. And, of course, he promises to return in a blaze of glory as a consuming fire that will judge those who mock him. In fact, in Matthew 24 and verse 27, we read, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Indeed, the light of his holiness will expose the wickedness of all those who love darkness. And likewise, it will forever illumine those who love the light. Quite often I listen in my study to Handel's Messiah. And as I was preparing this, it suddenly struck me that uh, one of the movements of the Messiah is that great uh, bass solo in Handel's oratorio that is taken out of Isaiah 9-2, where Isaiah is speaking of the government of the promised son when he returns someday to establish his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, fulfilling his covenantal promises to Abraham's descendants. And in that text, we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And I can hear that great bass singer singing that. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, the Holy Spirit has captivated my mind and my heart of late with the concept of light, even as my little grandchildren are captivated with the four little candles. Maybe you have these, you light the four candles and the heat goes up and it causes the angels to begin to rotate around and they 
they strike the little bell. And I watch the, the eyes of my grandbabies captivated with that light. And I believe perhaps the same is true with me and hopefully with you, especially after this morning. There are four things that I would like to focus on this morning with respect to the light that we see of found in Scripture. And we're going to see that the light symbolizes in Scripture four primary things. The glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of divine revelation, and the glory of the elect. First of all, let's think for a few minutes about the light symbolizing the glory of God. And for many of you, this may be review, but I want to build upon this because I I found in my studies that there's much that, that I hadn't really put together. And I think it will be helpful for you as well. Of course, the glory of God is the foundation of all great theology. That's why we exist, to glorify God. That is the single purpose that we have, the primary purpose for our existence. And what we see when we look in Scripture is that the triune God describes the glory of His presence always in this resplendent, brilliant, unapproachable light, which is called His Shekinah. In Daniel 2 Verse 22, we read that that he emanates light without shadow. And and we we read there that uh, light dwells with him. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 104 and verse 2 that he covers himself with light as with a garment. And we see the gold, golden brilliance of the divine light in Ezekiel's vision of God recorded in Ezekiel 1.4. And there Ezekiel says, then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of the midst of the fire. We also find in first Timothy six, Paul describes Christ Jesus to Timothy as dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. And in 1 John 1 and verse 5, we read that God is light. Fascinating thought. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And James 1.17 tells us that he is called the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, God does not change like the celestial bodies that vary in intensity and and shadow due to rotation and the orbit around the earth and so on. And as you think about it, since both light and darkness are energies, there exists in the universe a perpetual conflict between the two, between light and darkness. And as we would expect, light is superior because it can overcome darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 2.13, wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And we even get a sense of the conflict between light and darkness in Isaiah 45.7, where we read, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. Well, as you can begin to see, the spiritual analogies are, are many with respect to light and God intended it so. Now, light is easy for us to take for granted. 
It's all around us. We see it. But it is an amazing thing because as we will understand better this morning, light literally emanates from its source, who is God. Now, think of this. Can you imagine a world without light? Nothing could exist. Light is the single most important source of energy and heat on the earth. And light is the very essence of God that gives life to all things. The psalmist reminds us that in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life in your light. We see light. In other words, the significance here is both literal as well as figurative. God is the source of both of both physical and spiritual life. He is the source and sustainer of all light and all life. You cannot have one without the other. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 11:7, we read, truly, the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. Again, imagine a world without light. And if you can imagine that, then you can imagine a world without God. Physicists struggle to understand light. Let me give you a little lesson in physics. And I must confess, I'm way out of my element here. I had to do some reading on this. And I remember some of my physics classes and in, in college and uh, in graduate school, and they were fascinating to me, but I struggled with them. Having said that, now that you have complete confidence in my ability to explain light, please understand that light is a form of energy made up of both particles and waves. Light acts like particles because light has what they call photons that are like minuscule Bullets that, that stream from its source and move at a measurable velocity. And they call that the speed of light. And when certain objects obstruct light particles or these little light bullets, if you will, it creates a shadow. But light is also very different than a particle. It is also characterized as a wave. That does not exist in finite space. It has no, catch this, beginning or end. What a perfect illustration of our eternally existent God who is light, the father of light, who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, light waves are also, they say, like little ripples in space instead of bullets. Uh, this explains, for example, how rainbows work. And this this wave particle duality, if you will, is one of the most mystifying concepts, mystifying principles in all of physics, because they claim that light waves behave like particles and the particle like photons behave like waves. Go figure. Now. Stick with me. Waves transfer energy from point to point without the transfer of matter. Very different than the particle motion of the photons that's also in light. But because light has both electric and magnetic fields, it is also referred to as electromagnetic radiation. 
They have discovered, for example, that light waves come in a continuous variety of sizes, frequencies and energies. And we refer to this continuum as the electromagnetic spectrum. I found it interesting that the human eye cannot see light. Light is completely invisible. All we see is light interacting with tiny particles of matter in the air that reflect the light. The colors that we see in light depend upon varying wavelengths in the spectrum of light. In fact, visible light occupies only one one thousandth of a percent of the spectrum. And in this one one thousandth percent of the light spectrum, only in this minute portion of the light spectrum can we see colors. Now, stick with me again. This energy spectrum of light goes on this continuum especially thinking of the waves, the light waves, it goes from, if I can draw a line up here as you're looking at it, from radio waves to microwaves, infrared waves, and then you have visible light in the middle. And then the continuum moves on to ultraviolet rays, X-rays, and gamma rays. Now, we can't see any of those rays. You can't see gamma rays. You can't see the radio waves or the infrared or the ultraviolet or the x-ray, all you can see is that middle portion, that visible portion. And that's only in that one one thousandth of a percent of that huge spectrum. It's staggering. Now, folks, think of this. All of the beautiful colors that we see are, are found in this one tiny percent of the spectrum of light. If light, if the light continuum were one mile... And I started doing a lot of calculations on my little calculator. And believe me, this isn't completely accurate, but it's close. I figured that one one thousandth of a percent, if you put the light spectrum on a mile, would be smaller than the width of a human hair. And within that tiny continuum, we have all of the colors that we see. Isn't it interesting that God has only allowed us to see that much Yet within that minuscule range of light, we have all of the dazzling colors. And likewise, God has only revealed a minuscule portion of himself to us through creation and through his word. And if we thought of God somehow in an infinite continuum, there is only one little microscopic dot, so to speak, of revelation that we have of who he is. And yet in that one little spot through his word and through creation, we are absolutely amazed at the dazzling glory of his majesty and his excellency. Folks, what will it be like when we see him face to face and we see all of his glory? Rays of light are slowed, they say, when they pass through various objects like air and water or, for example, a diamond. And we've all played with prisms where you bend the waves of light that go through the prism, slowing down the various speeds of specific rays of light, resulting in the separation of various colors. I remember a physics experiment that we had in school. 
and maybe you've seen this before, where we enclosed uh, or they had enclosed a bell in a plexiglass container and they were able to suck out all of the air in the container to create a vacuum. And what's interesting, when you ring the bell, it makes no sound because sound waves cannot travel across a vacuum. But you can still see it because light waves can traverse a vacuum. There is nothing else in creation that does that. Again, is it any wonder why God would use light as a symbol of his glory? Nothing in the universe travels faster than the speed of light. They say, and I don't know who measured this, but somebody evidently has, that light in a vacuum travels 186,282 miles per second. That's fast. But no matter how fast you are moving, they tell me that the speed of light will travel at the same speed as if you were standing still. No other phenomena in the universe does that. I read one illustration where they that they used in one of the books I was reading that if you were to fly a fighter jet directly at a light source, the light source will not accelerate the speed at which the light appears to travel towards you. Likewise, if you fly away from it at any speed, it will not slow down its speed in catching up with you. Nothing else in the universe has this property. Friends, the amazing mysteries of light merely reflect the amazing mystery of God. For again, he is light. Is it any wonder why God used light to intimidate Job? Remember in Job 38, Job is, is questioning God's sovereignty and God needs to kind of put him in his place and and in essence, what he says in Job 38, beginning in verse 19, and I'm going to add something here. This isn't in the scripture, but in essence, this is what God is saying. Job, since you think you know everything, why don't you explain to me? And here's what the text says. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? And later on in verse 24, he says, by what way is light diffused? Which means parted in the Hebrew or, or, or separated. Only God knows. Scientists have no explanation for the original source of light. They have no idea where it came from. Well, I'm a simple minded man. I don't know much, but I know where it came from. And so do probably most of you. Our children do. On day one of creation, after creating the original material universe, God created light by divine fiat. He spoke it into existence. And he tells us in Genesis 1, 5, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. 
So the uncreated God of the universe who dwells in unapproachable light spoke the first light into existence. Thereby giving us a magnificent object lesson to help define the glory of his character. Well, not only does light symbolize the glory of God, but it symbolizes the glory of Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. In Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse two, we read God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Now catch this. And he, referring to the Son, is the radiance, or literally the brightness of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Now, folks, might I hasten to clarify here. Notice that Jesus does not reflect the glorious light of God the Father. He radiates the same glory from his person. For he is God and he is light. The radiance of his glory shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Paul recounted his conversion, you remember in Acts 26, in verse 13, he says, At midday along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. You see, the light again symbolizes the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, we know that the coming Messiah King... The Lord Jesus, when he comes again the second time, will come in light, even as he came with light surrounding much of his first coming. And all of this was predicted in Numbers 24, 17, for example, where we read a star would come forth from Jacob. The Hebrew, a koshav will come, a blazing forth, a shining forth will come from Jacob. And in David's last words, when he speaks of the coming Messiah, in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 4, he says, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. And in John 1, John the Baptist was the one who was sent, he said, to bear witness of the light in verse 7. And in verse 9, he says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And you will recall that it was the glorious presence of the living Christ the light of his glory that hovered over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And then eventually that Shekinah contained, was contained in a child, an Emmanuel, God with us. And later in John 1 and verse 14, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, all of that to say, light is a divinely fitting metaphor to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. One that is steeped in Old Testament illusions. You might recall in Exodus 13 that it was the light of the presence of God, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that led his covenant people out of Egypt through the wilderness. Again, symbolizing the blazing glory of Christ the Lord, delivering his people out of bondage. I told you we'd get to John 8. Here we are. Look at John 8 for a moment. There's a fascinating text. 
And might I remind you that John, the theme of John's gospel is Jesus being the son of God. And in verse 12 of John 8, Jesus speaks and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something. He says, I am the light of the world. This is very significant, and you're going to see this in a moment. So bear with me as I be a bit technical here. Whenever the Lord used this meaningful term, ego eimi in Greek, I am, whenever he used that, he is declaring himself to be the eternally preexistent God of the universe. The one who revealed himself in the Old Testament to Moses and to the Jews. You will remember that back in Exodus 3, remember when God commissioned Moses to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses was very frustrated and, and, and a bit frightened at the prospect. And, and God promised to be with him. And, but yet Moses said, well, when I go to the people and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They may say to me, well, what is his name? What am I supposed to tell them? And God said to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 14, I am who I am. And he went on to say, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, folks, the point is simply this. Rooted in the phrase, I am who I am, is the biblical name Yahweh, that ineffable tetragrammaton, the two wonders to speak from the lips, four letters, Yahweh, translated Lord. Tell them that the eternally preexistent one has sent you. Tell them that the one who has no beginning and has no end has sent you. Tell them that the one who is never improving, who is never changing, who cannot be explained or compared to any other reality in the universe. The one who simply is and absolutely is, is the one who sent you. And as a symbol of my person, I will res- I will manifest myself in a phenomenon that illustrates my character, namely light. There are several phrases, several other places in the Gospel of John where this phrase is used, by the way, where the Lord links his name through these I am statements to powerful metaphors that describe his saving purposes. Remember, he says, I am the bread of life. And here I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine and so on. But here in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world, the eternally preexistent God who led his people out of the bondage of Egypt is the light of the world. And you can no more define me than you can explain the light which emanates from me. And he goes on to say, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, friends, you must understand the context here in John 8. And this will help you better understand light as a symbolic illustration of Christ. The Jews were very, very familiar 
with the glorious light of his Shekinah. In fact, according to the Mosaic law, they would celebrate every year the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven day festival that began on the 15th day of the seventh month, which would be around September, October on our calendar. And it was also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering. By the way, this is the only Old Testament festival that will be celebrated during the millennial reign of Christ. A graphic reminder of God's deliverance and preservation of his people. Now, in this celebration, they would commemorate God's deliverance and protection and provision during the wilderness. And much of this, of course, centered around the light of his presence that led them in the fire and in the cloud. And you will recall protected them against the Egyptian charioteers that were pursuing them up to the the um, the Red Sea. And among other things, the people during the celebration would build little huts or little booths. They would take limbs and and build these little huts and and it would remind them of their wilderness journey and also celebrate God's provision of the autumn harvest. Now, in Jesus day. In the temple, here's what they would do during this time. They would have four great menorahs or great candles that would be lit. You've seen the menorah of the seven candles. They would have four great menorahs that were lit at night during the feast. And the wicks were made from the worn out garments of the priests. And these great lights would illumine the entire temple area. And under the great torches of the menorahs, the celebrants would dance a a torch dance to the accompaniment of the of the master musicians of the Levitical orchestra, who, by the way, were the only ones allowed to lead in worship. And the Levites would chant from the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 through 134. And they would they would chant one for each of the 15 steps that led down to the court of the Israelites out to the court of the women. It was a time of great rejoicing when they would reflect upon God's faithful deliverance in the past and his promised deliverance in the future. They rejoiced because they remembered his particularly the promises of Zechariah 14, where, we're, where they were told and were told about Messiah that will come as a consuming fire judging the nations and how his feet will land upon the Mount of Olives and he, how he will personally intervene against the nations who are arrayed to destroy his covenant people. They would rejoice about the coming warrior king, the Lord Jesus, even though they didn't know it was the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah that would come and save them, even as he did in the wilderness. That time when the Mount of Olives would split asunder, causing a great valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, as Joel describes it. So during the celebration, their minds are filled with these kingdom promises. They would think of the Jews that would flee from the wicked through the valley of escape, this valley of Jehoshaphat. And we're told that when that day would someday come, will someday come, that the heavenly luminaries will be extinguished. And so the people would think about Zechariah 14, 6, that says it shall come to pass in that day. There will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night. And. At evening time, it shall happen 
that it will be light. In other words, he's going to turn the lights back on during the millennial kingdom. And in verse nine, it goes on to say, and the Lord shall be the king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. No more false religions, no more Rome, they're thinking. No more idolatry. So all of this is going on now during the Feast of Tabernacles. But it is fascinating that at the end of the feast, these great menorahs would be suddenly extinguished, symbolizing the darkness that remains until Messiah comes. My friends, imagine the scene. All of the dancing and all of the celebration is over. And suddenly it becomes pitch black as the giant torches are extinguished. And it is believed that it was at this very moment, in the midst of sudden darkness, in the midst of, of the sacred quietness, when the reality of Messiah not being here seizes the souls of the people, that Jesus yells out this verse, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Well, folks, can you imagine what it would have been like? I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. The place was suddenly electric. And the Pharisees then break the silence. And the text goes on to say, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or what I or where I am going. And I might add, even as you don't know anything about the light that emanates from me, I am the light of the world, the pre-existent, eternally existent Yahweh. I am the light. What a glorious statement that was in the midst of that darkness. Dear friends, I hope that your hearts are illumined to the truth of the light of Christ. Later on, John in John 12, 46, he says, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. The Messiah was and is a light unto his people. But like the children of Israel, we must follow the light lest we walk in darkness. Because his light is always linked to salvation. We remember in Psalm 27, 1, that the Lord is my light and my what? My salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now think about this. Some people remain in the darkness and maybe you're in that situation. Darkness is the absence of light. And for some, that darkness, as we see biblically, is a darkness caused by sin. In Psalm 107, verse 10, we, the wicked are described as those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, that they're bound in affliction and irons. In Matthew 6, the Lord says they are full of darkness. He says, but if, you're, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the wicked know those without Christ, know how dark the darkness is. Because in the midnight hours, the night gives rise to the demons of guilt. 
those demons that they endeavor to silence. And Jesus said in John 3, and this is judgment. Here's the judgment, folks, that the light is coming to the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And friends, God has both a name and an eternal destiny for those who hate the light, those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls them the sons of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus says in Matthew eight twelve. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indeed, hell, it's not bad enough, will be a place of eternal darkness. For other people, the darkness is not darkness necessarily just of sin, but also of ignorance. And in our culture, we see people worshiping materialism and rock stars and, 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 and athletes. They don't even see the glory of God all around them. They know nothing of the light of his glory. They know nothing of his character. And they work hard at silencing their conscience by pursuing their lusts and indulging themselves in the fleeting pleasures of this world. Romans 1 tells us that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And later on in verse 21, it says, for even though they knew God, they do not honor him as God nor give thanks, but they become futile in their speculations and catch this. And their foolish heart was darkened. Is it any wonder, by the way, that the satanic rock music culture loves to wear black? Have you ever noticed that? We see so many young people today running around with this gothic look, black lipstick and, you know, the black, black hair and the black makeup and the black fingernails and black clothes. This is so indicative of the darkness in which they live. How tragic. Others are in darkness because they're blinded by error. And the diabolical father of lies, Satan, has blinded them from truth. They're prisoners of false teachers. Many of them have lived in generations of apostasy. They cannot see the light. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we read that the gospel is veiled to them. They can't see it. In whose case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Others are in the dark because of deep sadness. We've all seen the graphic pictures, the horrific pictures on television of the tragedy of the tsunami in Southern Asia. And I was struck by one Indonesian man, a Muslim, who said that I can't pray anymore. He says, all I see is suffering and death. I no longer have anything in me that desires to pray. How sad. He's without hope. And when you're without hope, you live in despair. Imagine if that man, like so many others, could see the light and could understand that Allah is a false God invented by the prince of darkness. He doesn't even exist. And that Jesus is the light of the world. And that Jesus is a sovereign God. And that God's saving purposes are often concealed in calamity. How wonderful it would be if he could see that. Beloved, do you remember that time... When, like me, you were once blinded by the darkness of sin. And then there was a moment in life when suddenly 
by the grace of God, you saw the light of salvation. Can you remember that? I can as a little boy. It's like a person that was blind from birth, who who really couldn't see, and suddenly I could see the light of the world. I could understand my sin and my Savior, even as Paul did on the road to Damascus. Suddenly, the darkness of guilt and shame was replaced with the with, with, with the dazzling truth of the light of Christ, and we're clothed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And suddenly, the confusion of life begins to to go away, and futility is replaced with purpose, the purpose of glorifying God. Suddenly, we're given a living hope, and the light of the Word of God begins to illuminate our hearts and our minds. We begin to see our sin and our Savior and the magnificent realities of God's redemptive purposes. We were snatched at that moment from the valley of the shadow of death, when we were placed into the kingdom of light, taken from the kingdom of darkness. You see, this is the Jesus that we worship, the light of the world. And someday, according to Isaiah 16, verse 19, where he sees a view of the new Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom, he says, the sun shall be no more thy light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but Jehovah will be unto thee an everlasting light and thy God, thy glory And someday, likewise, in Revelation 21 and verse 23, we read of the New Jerusalem, that 1,500 mile cube of a capital city of heaven. And it says there that and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. Well, light symbolizes the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And as we hurry along this morning, it also symbolizes the glory of the word the divine revelation that God has given us. In Psalm 119.105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Friends, imagine what it would be like if we did not have the lamp of divine revelation to show us how to walk through this life. We just have to make up stuff. We would just be merely groping about in the darkness, pursuing one thing after another, Hoping to find the answer to life. Dear friends, if if that is you, if you are within the sound of my voice, may I say to you that you are searching in vain. Because you are really searching among the dead to find the living. You'll never find it. Like a blind man, you're in search of something you cannot even understand. And you're shuffling along in the darkness of human wisdom, the the folly of, of human philosophy and psychology, seeking for meaning to life. And every step that you take as you shuffle along in your darkness, you are edging closer and closer and closer to a chasm in which you will eventually and inevitably fall off into eternal darkness. Unless you repent. And of course, repentance and the light of Christ is the gospel. As 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, this is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Psalm 119, 130 says, the entrance of your words gives life, or or, I'm sorry, gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And for those of us who love Christ, can you imagine how blind we would be without the light of the word? And you must remember, beloved, that you cannot separate the light 
from the word, nor can you separate the word from Christ. They are linked together. May I remind you of John one. And I love to read this in the old King James because I learned this. This was the the first section that I learned when I was learning Greek. And here's what it says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, of course, referring to Christ. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Beloved, please understand the Bible is God's revelation of the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a magnificent truth. The glory of Christ still shines in the light of his word and because of his great love. First Peter two tells us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of what? Out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we see the glory of God symbolized in light, the glory of Christ, the glory of the word. And finally, even the glory of the elect, the glory of his people. In Ephesians 5, 8, we read, for you were once darkness. Now catch this. It doesn't say you were once in darkness. It says you were once darkness. You get around people that don't know Christ and darkness characterizes who they are. It characterizes the character of the unconverted, if you will, because these people are utterly bereft of truth. They are spiritually blind for you were once in dark for you were once darkness but now you are light in the lord so walk as children of light Isn't that a wonderful text and in colossians 1:12 we're told to give thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light and in luke 16:8 jesus describes us as sons of light and in matthew 5 verse 14 he says you are the light of the world A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see the good works and glorify your father in heaven. And certainly as we look at America, a nation that has more Christian people than any other nation, we are a light on the hill. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul reminds us in verse 5, we are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And finally, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verse 15, to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Well, may I challenge you this morning to ponder these great truths. And if you haven't already, if you're here without Christ, I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to embrace the light of the world and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. And for those of us who love him, folks, let's get serious about being the light of the world. Let's allow the light of his word to illumine the paths of our lives so that we don't stumble around in the darkness of life and fall into the holes of temptation and sin. And then as we walk in the light of his glory, indeed, our lights will shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for these wonderful truths. Thank you for giving us light. Spiritual light through the Lord Jesus and through your word. And Lord, may we refract the glorious light of your presence, knowing that you dwell within us through your Holy Spirit that others might see your glory and might place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for ministering to us through your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.